Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, we want to remind you that we have Instagram, we have Patreon, we have Twitter, and most importantly, we have our hotline. Typically, we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call us or text us to the hotline and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to the SCAT Spirit Hour, everybody. I am the Colonel, of course. This is my son, Caleb. Unless this is your first time tuning in, in which case, I am the Colonel. This is my son, Caleb. This is the SCAT Spirit Hour, where we talk about all the weird shit that may or may not exist in the world. But before we do that, every week, we like to talk about the haunted little bar that I own, that Caleb works at, in our ghost report. And this week, we got a pretty juicy one. Caleb texted me last night to tell me we got a juicy one. I did. Uh, I My phone was plugged in playing music, so I actually forced our other bartender, who's been on the show, Megan. Yeah, Megan. She... Uh, uh, we talked about a haunted hotel with her. Um, but I was like, go grab your phone and take a picture real quick. And there's more to it as well. So I talk about the lights quite a bit if you've watched before and how the lights will sometimes change, especially the back ones. But every so often, the front lights, which are always red, a single blue light will appear, typically above the booth that we believe the lady with the long hair. There's two ghosts in the bar. There's a lady with long hair and there's a bald guy. But the lady in the, with the long hair occupies one of the booths in the back Typically, the red light above it will randomly turn blue. Um, well, last night, I am putting a, a new beer keg in the beer cooler, and I look up because it just gets weirdly bright all of a sudden, and the lights over both bathroom doors turned blue, and then one near the booth also turned blue. And they stayed blue for like 10 minutes. That's crazy. And to be clear, uh, because I bring this up every time just because I feel like it's prudent. I have replaced those bulbs. Mm -hmm. I've also replaced that string of lights before uh, because when it first started happening, I was like, okay, well, an easy way to see if this is just a faulty bulb, you know, because it'd be silly to throw all this about a faulty bulb. But it doesn't matter what lights we have up there. They always change. And last night was especially like more so than usual, huh? And the, and the really weird thing is I was like, uh, Megan was helping a guest and I was like, Megan. Megan, and she looked up, she's like, what? And I was like, look at the lights. And she kind of froze for a second. And I was like, go take a picture and send it to dad. <laughs> and she goes and she takes a picture and she's standing perfectly still, holding her phone perfectly still, takes the picture, goes to send it to you. And it's entirely blue. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like all the lights are like wavy and all. it looks like she did this while taking the picture, which I watched her. She stood perfectly still. And she was like, well, this isn't right and so she took another picture and allowed her to do it and after she took the second picture they stopped they changed back to red interesting yeah man those lights those are fucking fuck the marfa lights mm -hmm. come on down to the louisville lights <laughs> yeah yeah so that one that one uh it was like it kind of put us both on edge for the rest of the night which yeah that's understandable i mean that's a spooky <laughs> thing to have happen uh and we're like 99 percent sure they're not malicious spirits whatsoever. No, bottles never get broken. Nothing Stuff moves around, but nothing ever gets broken. And for the time I was in that building by myself, building it out, it's like my tools would go missing and stuff or things would 
you know, whatever little shit I'd hear stuff move or, you know, like a board would move or whatever. But no, I've never been hit by anything. No one's ever been hurt by any of the ghosts mm-hmm. in our building. So if it is haunted, which we're pretty firm believers it is, if it is haunted, uh, fuck, man, it sincerely seems like they they just want to party with us. Yeah, they're it's, just hanging out. I mean, we talk about it a lot, but it feels a lot like the woman with long hair likes you a lot. Because yeah. I've seen the lights change when you pull up to the bar, which blows my mind. Like, it's so weird. It's happened more than once. And it's a funny coincidence when it happens once. <laughs> it's like, I know the proportional bias. The For those who don't know what that is, Google it. It's one of our cognitive biases. Um, and it leads us to believe that um, the more we're... Oh, the more unbelievable a thing is, basically, the more you'll believe in it. Yeah. Uh, and I know that it kind of feels that way with this ghost, but we have such regular shit that happens. More so than any other haunted place I've ever worked, like, or lived or anything like that. Even more than here in our house where we've actually gone ghost hunting before and had good results. Yeah. Still, the bar is significantly more haunted than that. Yeah, uh, we definitely need to. If you haven't seen uh, Dad Built a Spirit Box, that video is super cool, and we got to use it here in the studio and got some wild results. We need to take it to yeah, the bar. Yeah, we got to take it to the bar. And again, this is where I offer the opportunity to anybody, amateur or professional, ghost hunter, if you'd like to come check out the bar, leave us a comment or shoot me a message, and I'd be happy to let you come in while we're closed and take a look at it because it's a pretty wild spot with a lot of story. But speaking of stories, uh, today's story is a fun one. This is actually a story we were going to cover a couple of weeks ago, uh, but... You know, in the big shuffle on the whiteboard, we kind of move things around is what feels more appropriate. We try to, you know, a little peek into our creative process. We have like a list of, you know, probably 10 subjects, cases we'd like to talk about. And then we try to figure out how they fit into the flow of things. And if we have things that fit with what's going on currently, we try to talk about that thing so there's a little bit of relevancy. And today is a good case of that. Yes. Uh, Today we want to talk about, honestly, the largest case of espionage in the U.S., Uh, the only case that led to... Uh, Americans being executed during the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, and that is the case of the Rosenbergs, of uh, Julius Rosenberg and his wife, uh, who would be, well, we'll get into whether or not they were guilty, but were accused and convicted and executed, as I mentioned, spoiler alert, and trigger warning, always a trigger warning on this podcast, uh, um, for, sorry, I got a little off base there. The Rosenbergs were uh, tried, convicted, and uh, executed for sharing atomic se- secrets during World War II. Yes. So they were uh, atomic spies for the Russians, and we feel like, well, what better time to talk about atomic weapons and the Russians than when they're about to drop nukes in Ukraine? Yeah. So, uh, as you know, if you're joining us, uh, or joining us for a multiple time, but if it's your first time, we typically tell about the person before we tell about the story. Yeah, because it's important to set the context. You know, sometimes, little background, I did go to journalism school, and they do teach you how to write stories there. And unfortunately, I was taught to write stories in the way that, you know, CNN still writes stories and Fox News still writes stories, which is very dramatized. It's very focused on headlines, and it doesn't really speak to nuance. So one of the things that we try to do on the show is anytime we talk about somebody, especially somebody who you might have um, negative opinions of, it's important to give you a full understanding of their character and who they are first. It's it's unfair to tell a story about a person, um, especially one here where, you know, we're putting it out to the world and we're sharing the story and it's somebody else's. It's important to talk about that person beforehand if you're going to tell their story. So this week we're talking about uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So Julius Rosenberg was born May 12th, 1918 in New York City to a family of Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire. They fled to the U.S. as the empire was falling. I was going to say, yeah, bear in mind what happened yeah. In, yeah, in the early teens in Russia when Tsar Nicholas II was done for. Uh, and his family moved to the Lower East Side by the time Julius was 11, and they worked in shops on the Lower East Side. 
to help uh, pay for Julius to go to uh, Seward Park High School and then go to City College in New York. And while he was at City College, he became a leader in the Young Communist League USA uh, during the Great Depression. It was a it was a big thing. Communism was on the rise during the Great Depression because it was like, hey, no one has a lot of anything. What if we shared? <laughs> yeah, it's really easy, especially post-World War II, to demonize communism and socialism as socialism <laughs> as like some sort of uh, akin to fascism. Yes. But it's not. You know, like the idea with them as immigrant or as the children of immigrants, but also during the Great Depression, communism became popular uh, and we saw it pop up in Russia and other countries, uh, China, so usefully, uh, specifically because it was about sharing things that previously weren't shared. Yes. Yeah, so when you live in a world where you have the ability to kind of have all this stuff, I think it's really funny now. I'll let you get back to it. I, I know I have a tendency to tangent, but I feel it's interesting now that we're so opposed to these ideas of sharing and community living in a world where we need it more than ever. Like, yeah. we can't live with this. We You can't exist away from each other anymore. We got to mm. stop building walls. I'm from the country. I'm about as from the country as one guy can be. I was damn near planted as a seed and grown out of the shit in the ground. No. But I understand that when you live near people, you got you you have a more interesting life. You you have to learn to share. You have to do a lot of important things. And I feel like communism promotes that. Yes. But that's my tiny little tangent on communism. I'll let Caleb get back to that. Feel free to leave comments about how I'm a cuck. So he ends up graduating from City College in New York uh, in 1939 with a degree in electrical engineering, which plays into his future career. And, you know, that's a very futurist job to have yes. at the time. It's important to point out the, well, the Green Glasses and and the Rosenbergs, but specifically Julius and Ethel in this case, were very pro-future. They yes. were looking to the future. They were definitely not looking to the past for opportunity. They were very, I, you know, he was an electrical engineer. We'll get into what she was doing as well, but everything was about progress. It was about going forward. So Ethel Greenglass, uh, or Ethel Rosenberg, as after they got married, was born September 28th, 1915, to a Jewish family in Manhattan, um, which shows you just kind of the class divide already between yeah. the two of them. Uh, he was on the Lower East Side. She was Manhattan. Um, she had a brother, David Greenglass. He plays into the story in, in a little bit. He does, and he's one of, I think, one of the, we joke on the show a lot that everything goes back to the Warren Commission, mm -hmm. but Greenglass is somebody that gets tied to the <laughs> Warren Commission a lot. So uh, she originally was an aspiring actress and singer, which, again, shows that class divide. Like, he, his family worked so Dude, he could go to college. the Great Depression, and she's like, I'm going to be a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you know, I wish I was in the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> he's like, we should share all this bread because there's ten of us in one loaf. And she's like, I would like champagne. Um, but she ends up uh, getting a job as a secretary at a shipping company, and the owner of the shipping company just kind of fucks everyone over. So she gets very involved in labor disputes and then joins the Young Communist League as well, where she met Julius in 1936. Well, because that's the other important thing to remember about communism and socialism is that it's built around labor rights. You know, yes. the idea of socialism is just taking the means of production and giving it to the people who produce it. That's yeah. not an insane idea for any, you know, I, again, I'll make it quick. But when you come from a rural place and you're told that the boss gets to keep everything you have or you get to keep it, why the fuck wouldn't you choose that yeah. one? A farm is a socialist environment. A farm, like the one, like the ones that I grew up around are communist environments. They don't have any interaction with the like outside communities and purely exist to make one another happy and healthy. We share vegetables, we share food, we share all this stuff. That's communism, y'all. Hate to break it to you. That's communism. I love I love the people that are like yeah, no, socialism and communism are a terrible thing. 
I sure do wish we could go back to the barter system. It'd be way easier. It's like, it's like, dude, that is communism. You did shit. That's yeah. how it works. Welcome. Welcome capitalism to the conversation. Capital. Yes, we agree. We would also like to go back to that system. I would also like to be able to barter with you. I think money is bullshit, and it's the thing that holds us all down. And the people who fight for it because it's, like, in theory fair at some point, it's like, well, I'm going to – I don't believe that you should be rich, but I will fight for your right to be – why the fuck would you fight for someone else's right to steal from you? And it's such a – well, when I'm – uh, when my boss makes a dollar, I make a dime. That's why I shit on company time. Hey, how about you uh, question why there's a yeah, 90% increase? How about you and your uh, coworkers all make 20% because there's five of you and you shit at home? <laughs> because you have more time to spend there. Yeah. <laughs> so they get married in 1939 after uh, Julius graduates from City College. Okay. And he almost immediately gets a job at the Army uh, Signal Corp Engineering Labs in Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. Well, and Monmouth is where a lot of the important, well, we'll get to that, I suppose, huh? But that's where a lot of the important technological advancements were being made during the war. Yeah, so during that time, uh, they were researching electronics, communications, radar, and guided missile controls uh, during World War II. Yeah, we have, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but uh, we're both big Something Awful Boys, uh, and one of the old writers there wrote this really great book called My Tank is Fight that talks about a lot of the technology that existed during World War II that maybe you didn't know existed, and largely it is unfortunately... Nazi technology, which is, you know, the ugly part. There's no there's no reason to celebrate them, obviously. However, a lot of that technology is really cool. And, you know, like, there was what... The Germans had night vision pretty much figured out. They had mm-hmm. stealth figured out. They had some really advanced radar figured out by the end of the war. One of my favorite things in that book is uh, the Germans were working on a nuclear-powered tank. Yeah. And they, like, built a prototype, turned it on... It started making a noise that they, like, quote, they're like, we didn't like the sound of the noise, so we turned it off and never turned it back on. (laughs) That feels like something out of Transformers or something. They just built a microwave. (laughs) They're like, we did it. And they're like, and they're like, oh, shit, that uh, sounds awful. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I left a piece of fruit inside the tank while we turned it on, and now it's just a piece of, I don't even know what this is. It's dried out. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. I didn't have a punchline. You know, I had a setup, but I I did not have a punchline. I apologize to everybody on the podcast. I take the L on that joke. I wonder if you could make... This is a tangent on my part. Uh, I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> if you could like make a microwave gun, which you can look up our no, Havana talked, syndrome. We have talked about this so many times. If you have any sort of <laughs> issues in your house, germs, whatever, you're worried about bugs in the walls, you're worried about government bugs, all you have to do is open your microwave door, tape the little pin that stops the microwave from turning on when the door is open down, and then set it on high for as long as you want, and it will take care of whatever's in your house. But if you pointed that at a tank, would it just cook the inside of the tank? Like, I'm sure those microwaves would just bounce around on the inside of the tank. inside of the tank? Well, like, you know what I mean. (laughs) It's like a hot pocket. Uh, It'd still be frozen. This tank is still frozen in the middle. You gotta put the paper sleeve on it or it won't be crazy. You know the hot pocket. (laughs) We're talking so, about microwave and tanks, and I'm sucking a whale dick. Continue. <laughs> so, um, Rosenberg, the <laughs> listeners who didn't know what just happened, Rosenberg uh, then gets recruited to be a spy for the Interior Ministry of the Soviet Union, or the NKVD, as I'll uh, mention it throughout the podcast. As on Labor Day of 1942, uh, by former Dude, spy that's master. So appropriate yeah. on Labor Day. By the way, uh, happy to everybody. Happy belated. Uh, International Women's Day. Yes. For those who don't know, that was started as a socialist holiday by a German garment worker who felt that the women needed an appreciation day, and the UN signed off on it. Oh, man, I'm so glad I saw so many, 
Owens National International Men's Day. <laughs> it's April Fool's Day. <laughs> it's it's April Fool's Day. Why would you need a day? I don't. You know, it's funny because like. <sighs> Last year in 2020, there were a, a handful of like um, POC holidays that were made. I do not give a fuck about Indigenous Peoples Day. I don't care at all. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to my family. And like, I, you know, they're those holidays are symbolic, but they're designed to be. They're symbolic to the people who that's good enough for. Yeah, yeah. If you can look at it and be like, you're right. That is a celebration. You're for sure right. Like, that's not how we celebrate women either. Yeah. yeah. That's why there shouldn't be an International Men's Day, because International Women's Day is a bad way to say you love the women in your life. Maybe don't be transphobic. Maybe be pro-feminist. Maybe do all these things that make the doors a little easier for women. Maybe just do that instead all year round. Sorry. There's a lot of (laughs) tangents on this one. All you need to know is that Julius and Ethel were terrible spies, and they gave away nuclear secrets. All right. See you guys next time. We're going to tangent a lot in this one, because it's a wild story. And honestly, we're a little worried about actual nukes falling. Yeah. I grew, we talked about this. We've talked about this so much. Anybody who's listened to me talk on this podcast, which unfortunately anybody who tunes in has to listen to me talk a lot, <laughs> even for a podcast. My hometown, I grew up doing Cold War drills. I'm not an old man. I'm 35 years old. Well, I am an old man, but I'm not that old. You know what I mean? I'm not a boomer. And it's crazy to think that even when I was a little kid, we used to do the put your head between your knees and kiss the world goodbye kind of shit. And now people take it super lightly. It's like, dude, when I moved to New York, I freaked out about the air raid siren that would go off because when I was a kid, the only memory I had was those drills because they would do them all the time. And that air raid siren is loud and scary. And then I played Silent Hill as a kid, and that didn't help. And then I moved to New York, and I lived in a Hasid neighborhood. I lived in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And the way that Hasid neighborhoods typically work is they'll ring an air raid siren or a bell to bring the kids home around 7.30. So I was, like, on my stoop the first day. And I had been to New York plenty of times, but I didn't know that was a thing. And I was standing on my stoop, and I heard an air raid siren. And I'm not kidding. There was just, like, a thing in the back of my head that was like, oh, sh- oh shit, oh, shit. Oh, shit's going to happen in New York, you know, because, like, I'm in New York. That's where 9-11 happened. You know, like, there's if you're if there's going to be a target, it feels like that's going to be it. When my dad and I were talking about the situation in Ukraine, because he's still in Great Falls, uh, dox me, Uh, he's still in Great Falls. And, uh, you know, he's concerned. And it's funny. He works at a Harley dealership. So all the dudes there, like their attitudes about all this is pretty wild. Mm -hmm. But Great Falls is at the top of that nuclear target list. If the nukes get launched, my dad will probably be gone. And that scares the absolute shit out of me. Honestly, I hate to say it, guys. It scares me more than losing the rest of you. (laughs) Caleb will be next to me. So if he goes, I'm going. (laughs) So, like I said, he gets recruited to the NKVD on Labor Day. We're doing a podcast. Of 1942. By former spy master, best spy master Dude, name. for real. Simon Simonov. I am a firm believer this is where Simon Says comes from. It has to be where Simon Says comes from. Simon Says. So uh, by this time, following the invasion by Nazi Germany in 1941, the Soviet Union had become an ally to Western powers, um, which included the United States after Pearl Harbor, of course, because we were out of the war. Uh, yeah. This the U.S. Whole- wasn't interested until Pearl Harbor got bombed. Oh, four years of genocide. We love to be like, well, we were there and we defended. It. We helped during the Holocaust. No, we took our damn sweet time during the Holocaust. The Holocaust started in 1938, guys. Oh man, is, is that shit still going on? Yeah, exactly. Oh wait, what they bombed one of our thing? Ah, oh, fuck. Now we got to get involved. Yeah, it's like okay, I guess now we'll go fight. We love to talk about D-Day like it was this big ass premeditated plan. No, 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 no. That's not how that attack happened. So. Uh, Rosenberg was introduced to Simonov by Bernard Schuster, who was a high-ranking <laughs> I mean, member. That's a good spy name too. Who is a high-ranking member of the Communist Party USA and an NKVD liaison? Communist Party in the USA. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll dub that over with her actual song. Um, after Simonov was uh, recalled to Moscow in 1944, 
his duties were taken over by uh, Feklisov. There cool. we go. Feklisov. Jeez. Um, who then became Rosenberg's handler. Okay. But Rosenberg provided thousands of classified reports from Emerson Radio, um, including a complete proximity fuse, which was big at the time. Yeah, proximity fuse, uh, yeah, why don't you explain how that works? Yeah. So, uh, typically, before missiles had two ways of firing. They had uh, trigger and impact, which the trigger, you actually had to watch the missile, and when it got close enough to what you wanted to blow up, you'd pull the trigger, and it'd blow up. And impact was exactly what it sounds. As soon as it hit something with enough force, it explode. Yeah. Proximity fuses is what were used in the atomic bombs. Yep. And it and was specifically were created for the atomic bombs. And it weren't was used before that. I mean, not widely. You could correct us on that, but everything we found was that proximity triggers were basically invented for the. Yeah. As a matter of fact, only was well, only Fat Boy had one. Mm-hmm. They didn't both have one. Yes. Um, proximity fuses are once you drop it, it gets to a certain point, and once it senses that it's close enough. It explodes, and that way, this is going to sound terrible, you maximize the efficiency. Yeah, well, and it's uh, to any Marvel fans, like, think about Wanda and the Stark missile that sat outside of their... That's So that doesn't have a proximity trigger. That has a regular contact trigger. Mm-hmm. And that's why something like that can sit there and sit there and sit there. So as ugly as it sounds, the humanitarian side to a proximity trigger is... There are negative things to it because it made landmine technology a lot better, but it also meant that we didn't have as many um, unexploded uh, munitions just sitting in fields. Yeah. There were fewer unexploded bombs. You know, after World War One, there were a lot of unexploded bombs throughout France and, and Germany and shit. So uh, under Feklasov's uh, supervision, Rosenberg recruited sympathetic individuals to the NKVD, including Joe Barr, Alfred Surratt, William Pearl, and Morton Sobel. Uh, who was also an engineer at uh, the factory, and Pearl supplied Feklasov under Rosenberg's direction with thousands of documents from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, including a complete set of design and production drawings for Lockheed's P-80 Shooting Star, which is the first widely manufactured fighter jet that the U.S. made. Yeah. So, like... Some serious shit was being funneled to the Russian government. I mean, pretty much all of it, right? Like, the highest level things were all being given straight to the Soviets. Because there was... Those guys worked at Emerson Radio. And we'll get into David Greenglass, uh, Ethel's brother. But he worked at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. Which, for those of you that have maybe, I don't know, uh, are into uh, the World War II or atomic bombs or have played, what, Battlefield or Half-Life or anything that ever talks about a nuke going off or an atomic bomb... You probably know about Los Alamos. It's in New Mexico. It's where they test all of those things. We saw it not too long ago. Yep. Yep. So Feklasov learned that Rosenberg, or through Rosenberg, that Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was working on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. And so he was like, hey, uh, Julius, der- like, recruit your brother-in-law. We need that information. So after a while, uh, he did get David to join the cause. And then in February of 1944, Rosenberg then also succeeded in recruiting a second source of Manhattan Project information, uh, an engineer by the name of Russell McNutt, or Rusty Nuts, as we like to call him. Dude, Rusty McNutt might be my favorite character name we've had in some time, since Shergar the Horse, I think. (laughs) So uh, he worked on designs for the plants at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and that is where uh, they manufacture weapons-grade uranium. Okay. So they were like, hey, we know how to build a bomb, but we don't know how to manufacture uranium. 
And he's like, well, I got a guy for that. And so they get a guy on. It's wild to think how this spy network worked, you know, like to be able to to say, like, I think about when people ask me for stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I got a guy who can help you with that. Or like, mm-hmm. I know a person who does that. And then I think about applying it to this. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> so Rosenberg received a bonus for getting a second Manhattan Project uh, engineer on the team. You want to <laughs> guess how much money he got? Well, 1944. I mean, am I guessing in today's dollars or then's dollars? Then's dollars. Oh, shit. I don't know. 50 bucks? $100. Hey, that's pretty good money. It is pretty good. That's pretty good money. I, you know, that's also sort of an arbitrary thing. But I guess, is your thought there that they deserved more money than that? Do you think no. they should have been, they should have got the bag? I mean, it, I mean, if you're sharing atomic secrets, you're but sharing, they're also communists, so they don't really want the bag. That's true. That's true. Yeah, they want the cause. That's true. Yeah, the, they're, Brothers and sisters living in solidarity, they're comrades. That's sort of the bag here. So the USSR and the U.S. were allies during World War II, but the Americans did not share any information about the atomic bomb with uh, anyone. We were very, very tenuous allies. Yeah. And we're allies right up until the Japanese surrender. Yeah. And then went, okay, so you want to fight now? Because then we went into, uh, it was called the Cold War. It's what this podcast is about. It lasted for, what, 40 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cold War was rough, man. 50 years, really, almost. So the West was then shocked by the speed in which the Soviets were able to stage their first nuclear test by the name of Joe 1 on August 29th, <laughs> 1949. Dude, do you think that was a dig at Americans? They named it Joe. Yeah. yeah. Joe Mama. Uh, <laughs> Ligma. But the- I'm amazed that the, the mission to Mars ship isn't called Ligma. You know? <laughs> that seems like some shit Terry would do. So the head of the uh, official... Or the head official of the Soviet nuclear project, um, General Berea, said that... Like the tacos? Yes. Nice. Um, said that they used foreign intelligence, but he didn't trust it, and they only used it as a third-party check. They didn't. They did all their own research, but they, they used foreign intelligence as a third-party check. This dude sounds like the type of guy you meet at like a QAnon rally, and he's like, well, yeah, uh, I'm... I mean, all this stuff is on forums, but, like, I did my own research also. Was it of these posts on the forums? And other stuff. Like, that's just what it feels like. And he would, uh, instead of giving it to the design team, who he did not clear to know about the espionage efforts, he said that the design team's development was natural. And then once they designed something, he would reference it. (laughs) He would reference it to the notes that they got from the Manhattan Project and been like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It's, I mean, I also don't know how much of that I believe. Yeah. Because this was, I mean, it's, listen, technology, I am in an interesting position currently in my normal daywalker life mm-hmm. uh, in that I've invented a thing that is truly, like, revolutionary. It's weird to say that, you know, because we're taught to be humble, but it really is. But it's being treated kind of differently, yeah. you know, like, because people are in a hurry to just know it rather than do it. And all... I only say that because if it was a a nuclear weapon or an atomic weapon that I was working on, it's pretty easy to tell when somebody can see the idea but hasn't done the work to get to the solution. Yeah. So I think you could probably pretty quickly analyze that Russian munition and be like, yeah, I know that you said that, but everything's exactly the same, and that's virtually impossible because it's not like it's logical, right? Yeah. It's not building a ladder. It's not building a chair. It's not building a simple thing. When you're creating a sophisticated new thing, you decide the language in which it is carried, and you also decide the way that it works. Yeah. And I would imagine these scientists in Los Alamos were probably like, Sure, you came up with all that shit. Sure, you did. Sure, it's 
word for word what we yeah. said. Weird. Why'd you call that thing a doohickey? We named that. <laughs> yeah. Why is it? Wh- it has a proximity trigger? Mm-hmm. You don't say. Tell me more about the exact. Well, first of all, we're both wrong. We all know that the atomic bomb was created by Glipshitto or whatever his <laughs> name was in Eternals. Yeah, Glipshitto. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave it to humans <laughs> and then swore to no longer do technology and also be gay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so. Uh, anyway. Um, Julian then gets fired. In 1945, because they find <laughs> out that he has uh, former ties to the Communist Party. Dude, what a fuck up, though, because he got fired in 45. Mm-hmm. The war was over. Yep. So they were like, hey, we were thinking about going into Korea. Have any of you guys got any Soviet ties? And he's just like, oh, yeah, I've been spying on him the whole time. You want me to go talk to him? Like, what? The, how the fuck did it take him that long? It's like not even worth it then. Yeah. You know what? I think they executed these people because they were pissed that they snaked him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in January of 1950, uh, the U.S. discovered that another great name, Klaus Fuchs, or Klaus Fuchs, yeah, as Klaus we like Fuchs to call him. Yeah, Klaus Fuchs is a good one, man. I forgot that, you know, it was a couple weeks ago, but this story has some of the best names. He was a German refugee who was a theoretical physicist working for the British mission in the Manhattan Project. He was Project. theoretically a physicist. Uh, he had given key documents to the Soviets throughout the war. And uh, Fuchs identified his courier as American Harry Gold, okay. who was arrested in May uh, 23rd of 1950. He was like, yeah, um, I was giving information to the Soviets. This is the guy who helped me do it. He's an American by the name of Harry Gold. Well, after he gets arrested on May 23rd, on June 15th. We should start a crypto coin called Harry Gold. By Harry Gold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on June 15th of 1950, David Greenglass was arrested by the FBI. Uh, he was arrested on suspicion for espionage and soon confessed that he had also been passing secret information to the USSR through Harry Gold as well. Um, he also claimed that his sister, Ethel, and her husband had convinced his wife, Ruth, to recruit him while visiting him in Albuquerque in 1944. Well, there's not a lot to do in Albuquerque. Yeah, we, we drove through it. Yeah. Um, he said that Julius had passed secrets and linked him to the Soviet contact uh, Antoly Yakolev. Dude. Yeah. Antoly Yakolev. Uh, this connection would be necessary as evidence that would get the Rosenbergs convicted for espionage. Which, you know, now that we've told you what happened with the Rosenbergs, we get into did it happen? Because there are a lot of questions about whether or not they were patsies, whether or not they were chosen. An important thing to bring up now is McCarthyism. For those of you who don't know who Joseph McCarthy is, we'll mm-hmm. get into him here in a minute. But McCarthyism was uh, running rampant in the U.S. uh, by the 50s, but it started in the 40s, and it was a fear of the Soviets. It was a fear. Basically, uh, we waited forever to participate in a war that we did very little to actually win. Uh, The Soviets did most of it. They had the highest casualties. They had the most land fighting. They had the most everything. Um, And it destroyed their country in the process. You know, they lost 3 million people, and it just like actually leveled so many cities and America didn't really have to deal with any of that and stayed this land of milk and honey. If you think that that isn't going to build like <laughs> those two countries aren't going to like each other and they're going to continue to not like each other because one is going to say, Hey, I won the war. Look at me. It's like, it's the rich snobby kid in school taking credit for the team work, yeah. you know, when he didn't do anything on the team project. And Russia, who did all the fucking work, is like, excuse me, excuse me. I would, li-. but you know, it didn't really matter. So, in an effort to keep them 
sort of at bay and to keep us right in the greater narrative about what happened during World War II, the one we continue to monetize over and over and over again, despite it not being entirely accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very convenient to just sort of blame it on any and all communists. Oh, yeah. And anybody who had a connection to communism had to have been a bad person. So... Yeah, while these people were in the Communist Party, that's not fucking illegal. And it wasn't illegal during the war. It's not illegal now. As we've mentioned, I'm very pro-communism. I think that sharing with your neighbors is a good thing to do, especially when you can. I, Again, rural person. I love to go over to my neighbor's house and have mm -hmm. dinner and, and share that sort of stuff. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's an easy case for demonizing people who maybe weren't guilty of the thing they were allegedly guilty of. These people, as we're going to, as I'll let you get into here in just a second, I'll let you get into the arrests and the the court case and all of that but there i want everybody to keep in their mind that at the time there were two very strong currents in america there were there was an anti-communist sentiment especially mm -hmm. if you had come from a russian family and there was a tremendous anti-semitic sentiment now you can say but but hitler was the only anti-semitic person during world war ii again it took four years for us to get involved in the war if you don't think that there's a high level of passive anti-semitism in this country now let alone then yeah. i don't know what the fuck to tell you there absolutely was so could it been people victimizing easy targets quote unquote i don't mean to you know ethel and julius were incredibly capable people but in terms of social targets they were relatively easy social targets yeah. is that what they were i think that there's a conversation there too but think about that while caleb talks about the case so on july 17th 1950 uh, julius gets arrested on suspicion of espionage based on his brother-in-law's confession and on August 11th, Ethel gets arrested uh, because she was testifying and was like, yeah, uh, we did convince uh, my brother's wife to try to get him recruited when we visited him. So she gets arrested Again, as though, well. Again, not an illegal thing to do. No. It's just a political party. Yes. They're not, a, this isn't fucking ISIS. It's fine. It's not, you know, these are just people talking about sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another accused conspirator, uh, Morton Sobel, I talked to Dude, earlier. Sorbel's my favorite. Can I tell that story? Yeah. So Sorbel, let me make sure I get it right. It was in El Paso or was it in Mexico? Yeah, it was in Mexico. Okay. So he was in Mexico on the run and decided for whatever fucking reason that it would be a good, he's already in Mexico and like every trope in American storytelling about going to Mexico involves committing a crime first. So I guess he did that, but then was like, you know what? I'm going to keep doing crimes because by the time he got to Mexico, he was hard up for cash and he decided to rob a bank and got fucking caught. Imagine, dude, you are being chased by the American government for sharing atomic secrets. And you were like, well, it can't get any worse. Fuck it. I'm going to go rob this taqueria. And he, and he got caught, and then that's what got him extradited back. And I think that that's absolutely beautiful. Wait, a, my dad had this rule. He's going to appreciate me talking about this, but my dad has this rule about uh, doing, if you're going to do crimes, do only do cool crimes. Don't hurt other people. Don't disadvantage other people. And don't ever do more than one crime at a time. Yeah. Yeah, you do more than one crime at a time, and you're going to get yourself in a whole bunch of trouble because you're not going to be able to spin the plates. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do a crime, it's going to require all of your attention. Make sure to only do one crime at a time. Martin Sorbel did not do one crime at a time. He didn't. Uh, so the trial for the Rosenbergs and Sorbel uh, on federal espionage charges began on March 6, 1951, in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. And uh, the judge was Judge Irving Kaufman. He presided over the trial with his assistant, U.S. Attorney Irving Saypool. <laughs> the Irvings. The Irvings. Uh, leading the prosecution. I think, like, Michael Irving might be the, And that's not <laughs> even Irving. I think it's Irvin. I think it's his actual last name. I don't know any Irvings. Uh, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Led the prosecution. 
And then on the criminal defense side, you had criminal defense lawyer Emanuel Block representing the Rosenbergs. And the prosecution's primary witness was David Greenglass. And which is such a shitty thing. Like, it's your brother-in-law. Yeah. Like, and they and to make him turn rat on the rest of his mm-hmm. family. You know, because these are huge charges, right? Like, these people got executed. These were enormous charges. It's just so dirty. I don't know. And I guess they raise them a little different in Manhattan because uh, where I'm from, the you take that shit to the grave if you have to. So while David was testifying, he was like, yeah, I gave Julius a sketch of a cross-section of an implosion-type atom bomb. This was the fat meme that was dropped on <laughs> Nagasaki. Um, as it had, it was an implosion-type atom bomb. It had the proximity trigger that they were working on. As opposed to the little boy that was dropped in Hiroshima, that had the gun method triggering device. So it had what looked just like the lower receiver of a pistol, and once it got close enough, you'd pull it. Fuck, man, I want to hear that person's... I mean, I I only kind of want to hear that person's story, but fuck. Yeah. Somebody pulled the trigger on that bomb. Someone didn't just fall out of a plane. Somebody chose to kill all those people. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. So on March 29th, 1951, uh, the Rosenbergs were convicted of espionage. Uh, They were sentenced to death on April 5th under Section 2 of the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, That states that anyone convicted of transmitting or attempting to transmit to a foreign government information relating to the national defense may be imprisoned for life or put to death. Which, I mean, that was just put in place in 1917. That was something that happened after World War One. Yeah. Like, like World War One closed, and like, shit, a lot of people passed secrets. We should probably do something about this. It's interesting now, too, because, you know, with everything that happened with Trump and all of the, like, state secrets that were probably shared... It's interesting that we haven't taken to it this way. Or even the, like, the January 6th situation, I think, is interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I don't... Ukrainian Christmas, I don't think it's, like, the biggest fucking thing in the whole world. I think it's really funny. I think those guys sucked at it. I think they got in there and didn't have a plan. And then we're like, I don't know, let's take selfies. (laughs) Fucking idiots. Uh, Let's steal a podium and a flag. It's not like, maybe I was a door guy at a nightclub for too long, but it's just, like, a bunch of tough guys being, like, yeah, and posturing and shit. And then the moment you step to them, they're like, well, you know, I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna go home. Because it's, like, you brought stuff to kidnap and kill people you brought a guillotine and you didn't even use it come on guys come on but like those people are being given like really really soft like softball uh sentences yeah yeah they're getting like fewer than two years and stuff these guys got executed and they got executed for i mean they were they were in a communist party and they were scientists there's no hard evidence that they did anything else. Yeah. Yeah, they shared stuff with each other, but there's never been any hard evidence to prove that they actually shared atomic secrets. And even the Russians, as we mentioned before, despite the fact that that might have been a little bit of a fib, said, hey, we didn't do this with any shared intelligence. We just figured it out on our own. We aren't stupid. We have spies. We knew you had atomic weapons. We just figured, okay, well, we got to figure out how to make an atomic weapon. They did get to the fucking space before we did, lest we forget. You know, I'm not trying to make this pro-Russian. <laughs> I mean, I am pro-Russian people. I want to make that clear. I yeah. am very pro-Russian people. I'm just not pro running into another country and deciding you're going to own it now. That's not a cool thing. And I know I'm saying that as an American, but to be clear, I don't like it here either. Yeah. Caleb has to listen to me bitch about it all the time. So uh, prosecutor uh, Roy Kahn uh, later claimed that he influenced that Kaufman and Saypool were appointed to the Rosenberg case. And that Kaufman imposed the death penalty because of his own personal recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Well, he worked, Cohn worked a lot with 
Joseph McCarthy. Yes. So uh, he would later work for Joseph McCarthy as the chief counsel to the investigation subcommittee. Oh, no, I believe that position is actually called Inquisitor. Cohn, like I said, would later go on to work for McCarthy uh, during the height of McCarthyism as... It was all the rage. ...the chief counsel to the investigation subcommittee um, when McCarthy had his 10 years chairman of the uh, Senate Government Operations Committee. So, okay. like, he was he was his grand inquisitor, as you said. Yeah, and for those who don't know, like... <sighs> The McCarthyism, if you're saying to yourself, like, oh, was it a big deal? I understand that, like, this was long enough ago that maybe it's not like it really gets taught very well in schools. It, maybe you're, uh, are you guys, like, exaggerating? Is it a little much? There was a Hollywood blacklist. There were people who were publicly blacklisted mm -hmm. as communists. It was a very easy thing. Um, it, you know how conservatives complain now about cancel culture? It was like that except real and significantly worse because you could be arrested for yeah. it. Yeah, it wasn't just like, oh, somebody's going to be mean on the internet for a couple days. It was, you're going to get arrested. And in this case, if they can make a case stick, maybe executed. Yes. So while he imposed the death penalty, uh, Kaufman noted that he held the Rosenbergs responsible for not only espionage, but also for Americans' death in the Korean War. And that's fucking disgusting because yeah. it's not like... like <sighs> He's saying that because he thinks that the Americans should have been able to go to Korea and decimate Just, it. yeah. Yeah, in a conflict, which that really is worth your time looking up. You know, we could do probably a 10-hour podcast on the Vietnam or the, the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War. Um, but the Korean conflict is really fucked up. Like, it was really, really, really fucked up. And the way that uh, we intervened, not dissimilar from the way we intervened in Vietnam. We were not asked to do so. Nope. No. Uh, we were entirely imposing. If you think what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now is bad, that's exactly what we were doing during Korea, Vietnam. Basically, after World War II, we took the opposite stance on war, and we're like, oh yeah, no, fuck, we'll war everywhere, and then we just started invading anybody who we thought were committing thought crimes. Like, they oh, said, you you do your government different? Nuh-uh, buddy. Like, how how does that not make us a war criminal? They said, wait, war makes us month? No, we should do that more. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, uh, final episode, a shout out here, but it, the Barry Seal episode, if you guys have mm -hmm. listened to that, that talks a lot about the politics that had to do with Vietnam, Korea, McCarthyism, anti-communism, because it has to do with the Contras in South America. It has to do with uh, the really crooked levels that the CIA and DEA would go to to ensure that communism was stomped out. Yeah. It's, it's ugly shit. So this was, if you're wondering, like, could they really have been executed if they didn't do this? Yes, absolutely. They absolutely could have been executed if they didn't do this. So uh, this is actually what he said at the trial. He said, I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted that they would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea with the resultant casualties ex exceeding 50,000. And who knows that, but millions more of innocent people may pay the price for your treason. Indeed, by your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. What country? Your country of stolen land, of stolen valor, of fucking rape and pillage? Is that the country you're talking about, you piece of shit? Maybe you don't go fight with people in another country because they have a different set of political ideals than you do. I think it's interesting that out of the same mouths you'll hear things like love it or leave it and then shit like that. Yeah, It's like, no, you got to pick which side you're on. And if you think that the country is supposed to be one specific type or direction, you're fucking wrong. We're entitled to whatever we want, however we want. So this idea that like 
I don't know. The political ideas behind it are so myopic and mm-hmm. so stupid and they're so predatory and it's just so fucking easy to pick the color red and be like, that's why. That's the reason. It's the color red. It's like, no, man, there's so much more to this. And it gets, again, it gets lost because it's like the idea of communism, once again, is community. It's not about oppression. It's about sharing. I'm sorry that you're going to be upset that you don't get to feel the emotional boner of having 10 times the income of another person. But you know what you can feel? A fucking flex that everybody you know is educated, well-fed, happy, and safe. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to me. Uh, So the U.S. government offered to spare the lives of both Julius and Ethel if Julius provided the names of other spies and admitted their guilt. And they made a public statement. They said, by asking us to uh, refute the truth... And Which they did forever, by the way. They never admitted to sharing yes. any secrets. They said that they shared them with one another, mm-hmm. but they never shared them with the Communist Party. Now, of course, that could have been a lie as well. But. They, uh, so by asking us to refute the truth of our innocence, the government admits its own doubts concerning our guilt. We will not be coerced, even under pain of death, to bear false witness. First of all, real old G's. Yeah. Yeah. They had fucking held tough and took it to the grave with them, like you're supposed to. And... Above all else, insisted that they actually weren't guilty, which, you know, is if you are guilty, that's quite the flex. So their execution was delayed from the original scheduled date of June 18th because Supreme Court uh, Associate Justice William O. Douglas granted a stay of execution the previous day. And that stay resulted from an intervention in the case by Fike Farmer, another great name. Dude. Who was a Tennessee Late lawyer. Edition. Yeah. Yeah. Can you guys imagine this Tennessee Williams ass? He's a. He's fucking from Tennessee. His name's Fike. Fike. That's not a name. Fike Farmer. Fike Farmer. Uh, he was kind of interfering with the case, and the Rosenberg's attorney, uh, Emanuel Block, was like, hey, I don't like the fact that he interfered the way he did. Can we take, like, an extra day to kind of look into the things that he may have caused? They're like, yeah, sure. So they give an extra day. So the next day, the execution was scheduled for 11 p.m. Uh, that is during the Sabbath, if you're not familiar uh, with Jewish culture and heritage. Sabbath, you're not supposed to do anything. Nope. Um, and it starts at sundown and ends at sunup. So it's when you're supposed to rest. So the block asks for more time, filing a complaint that execution on the Sabbath it goes against Jewish heritage. It, it would offend their Jewish heritage. And Rodolax, another attorney on their defense team, went to Judge Kaufman and was like, hey, um, you c- can you please not execute them at 11 p.m.? That goes against the Sabbath. That's, like, super offensive. Yeah, he, he goes and he appeals, and he's like, hey, listen, uh, I get it. They're going to die. I understand. However, could we please be respectful in their passing so that they can, you know, if, if they die during the Sabbath, they can't. There's a lot of things ceremonially that are ruined. Um, so there's, like, this idea okay well let's get a stay yes awesome perfect we won't kill them on the sabbath no problem you're right that's saturday night mm-hmm. that would be terrible what time does it start and they go oh it, it starts around seven he goes cool can i just kill you at six thirty? yeah and they're like fuck <laughs> yeah so he's like oh yeah no no no. oh you said we have to do it before sunset okay how about 8 p.m when we normally execute people and they're like fuck it is summer the sun's still up um <laughs> Yeah, I guess. So he walks back and like, hey, guys, so. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine he walks back in and he's like, good news, bad news. Gotcha stay of execution. Bad news, um, not actually a stay. Just use that word because I don't know what you'd call it when it's sooner. Sorry. <laughs> Love you guys. Bye. 
You guys are no longer being executed on the Sabbath. Uh, you are being executed in about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, about so. 45 minutes. So uh, get that last meal in quick. So uh, trigger warning, I am about to talk about their execution. So if you, And it gets a little wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you don't want to listen to that, please skip ahead. Ethel was tough as nails. Uh, give you some time here. All right. <laughs> uh, if you stayed, here's the execution. So on June 19th, 1953, um, they get executed by electric chair. Uh, Julius died after the first electric shock. Typically, a normal course is three electric shocks, but he died after the first one. Uh, Ethel did not go as smoothly. No, she, she was a, tough as nails. Yeah, she had a green green mile situation. Uh, she was given the normal course of three electric shocks, and the attendants went to go remove the strapping and the other equipment. And she bit them. And the doctors determined that her heart was still beating. Uh, so they're like, all right. They applied two more electric shocks, and at the conclusion, uh, they pronounced her dead, and eyewitnesses reported... And also medium well. Yeah. Uh, eyewitnesses reported that smoke was coming from her head. Yeah, it's a green mouth situation, yep. man. Smoke coming out of her eyes. Yeah, really electric. It's gross as fuck, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know how you can fix that problem at home. Microwave. Open your microwave. <laughs> Put your head in it. We should make um, a TikTok about that and then get banned from every format. We're, we'll, we'll only be on Rumble after we make that. Think you have a tapeworm? Put your stomach in the microwave. <laughs> Zap it right out. Um, so Got a ringing in your ears? Put your head in there. Ears can't ring if they're melted. Um, <laughs> welcome back if you skipped ahead. <laughs> yeah, I guess. yeah, we should probably. Uh, it's good we got that shit in before the, the end of the trigger warning. So, uh, the funeral services were held in Brooklyn on June 21st. Ethel and Julius were buried at the Wellwood Cemetery, which was a Jewish cemetery in Pine Lawn, New York. Yes, it is. And the New York Times reported, uh, I'll read their actual report. The bodies had been brought from Sing Sing Prison by National Rosenberg Committee, which undertook the funeral arrangements. And an all-night vigil was held in one of the largest mortuary chapels in Brooklyn. Many hundreds of people filed past the barriers, most of them clearly regarded the Rosenbergs as martyred heroes, and more than 500 mourners attended today's services, while a crowd estimated at 10,000 stood outside in burning heat. Mr. Block, their counsel, who delivered one of the main, uh, oh, why can't I think of the word? Uh, not obituaries. <laughs> Eulogies. Eulogies, there we go. Uh, bitterly exclaimed that America was living under the heel of a military dictator garbed in civilian attire. Because he was fucking right. Uh, and that the Rosenbergs were sweet, tender, and intelligent, and the course they took was one of courage and heroism. My hot take is that I agree with them, man. I think that it was tough as fuck. Listen, if they really did do this, it was tough as fuck. They were brave about it. They went down with the ship. They didn't give up their secrets. They held tight, and I think that's a very admirable quality in a person. Yes. uh, Let alone two people. They were obviously very well-educated and dedicated to bettering the world the way that they saw fit. And I think that it's easy from a uh, political – it's interesting. It's easy to criticize that type of work, but I've always found it odd to um, empathize with those imposing cruelty versus those that are having it imposed upon them. Yeah. If a, you know, We say it a lot on here, but always side with labor. Mm-hmm. Um, to be clear, I'm not a hypocrite. I know I said at the beginning of this I do own a business. I do, but I it's about as close to a socialist business as it can get. These guys make more money than I do most of the time, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Um, so you don't have to necessarily give in to these things. You can still exist as a, like a good sharing person in the world. There's a gray space. And I think they were trying to 
fight for that world. They saw that the people they loved and the people they saw and listened to were being hurt and that they weren't lying about it and that they needed help. And they were, I think they were legitimately just trying to help those people. And it, for those that, you know, cast, I don't know, any sort of judgment towards the idea that, you know, sharing military secrets or whatever, fuck you. All is fair in love and war. And if you pick that kind of fight, there is, if it's a, if it's a fight on a global scale, there is no clear cut good and bad guy because there are too, too many fucking dicks on the dance floor. Yeah. It's very difficult to try to separate who's who and what's what because everybody starts to be wrong at some point. Yeah. So I think in the greater scheme of things, I'm, man, I don't know if they did it or not. And if they did, more power to them. I understand Feel free to cancel me in the comments or whatever for that. But they're brave fucking people, and they stood up for what they believed in, and what they believed in was taking care of their neighbors in a time when neighbors were not taken care of, when people were not seen as equals, when they were not seen or treated fairly. And I think all that stuff is valuable. So that's my little eulogy for the Rosenbergs. But I say God bless them, you know, or, well, I guess in this case, yeah, uh, God bless them. You know, like they were... They were trying their best to improve a world that they saw was awful. I think it's yeah. very easy as an American. We've never, ever, 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 ever fought a war on domestic land with a foreign uh, enemy. Mm -hmm. Look what happened during 9-11. Look how people react. You know, now try living in a country that gets bombed by us all the fucking time. I mean, come on. You live under that sort of thing. You see what happens. We're not fucking heroes here, and we're not heroes in the world as a military. So, I mean... <laughs> See, I think, you know, Team America World Police puts those points a lot better than I can at the yeah. end of the podcast. <laughs> but I definitely support the shit out of these Rosenbergs. And I think they were just trying to even the playing field. And according to the Russian government, they weren't doing that anyway. And, again, they did go to space before we did, lest yeah. we forget. So we had to – our moon landing was a hoax. They actually made it. That's the real conspiracy is that uh, – those were Russian sleeper agents. Why can't I think Neil Armstrong? Who's the other one? Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. Dude, Buzz Aldrin would punch me right in the fucking face for saying that. If I said that he was actually a Russian. Oh, man. That, remember that guy that he punched who said he didn't really land on the moon? Yep. More respect to him, too. A lot of respect being dealt at at the end of this podcast. <laughs> sorry, I have been talking for like four minutes straight. Would you like to say something, Caleb? I'm sorry. Oh, no. I just believe that <laughs> uh, what they believed in fundamentally was sharing. And they saw that. <laughs> yeah, state secrets. No, <laughs> that uh, one country was about to build something that would tilt the scale drastically in one way. So they just wanted to level the playing field. They they were like, no one person should have this technology. No one man should have all that power. And I mean, it they decimated two fucking cities. And if that proves their point of if one country could do that to two cities, they liquidated two cities. I mean, look at what we're doing right now, right? Like, yeah. Putin is using the threat of nuclear holocaust or launching nuclear weapons to try to hold off being attacked for doing something that he knows is wrong. Yeah. The fear of these weapons is very real, and the fact that they exist is fucking terrifying, and it ruins our world. It sincerely does. I'm not a, the biggest gun guy, but that's a smaller subject. These world-decimating weapons shouldn't exist. There's no reason for them to exist, because the only thing they're ever going to do is solve a problem in the wrong way. Yeah. There's never going to be a problem that's solved with nuclear weapons in a way that fixes a goddamn thing. Yeah. It's just stupid, weak, little men hiding in bunkers, being insecure, and forcing young, capable, 
human beings off to war. I mean, look at some of these soldiers that have been picked up. You know, yeah. they're fucking teenagers who had no idea what they were doing. It's yeah. it's disgusting, and it's a terrible way to live. And I don't think that in this world where nuclear weapons exist, I don't think it's unrealistic that at some point everybody's going to have them, man. They just will. They just will. Yeah. It, it's inevitable. I hate to break it to you, but it's not... If a thing can exist, it's like when people want to get rid of something, like stop saying this word or stop doing this. You can't. You can't. Did you guys, do you not remember the story of Pandora's box? Once it's out, it cannot go back in. You can't get all the toothpaste back in the tube, man. Once it's out, if it exists in the world, it exists. It's like, it's what Democrats don't fucking understand about the internet. Mm -hmm. Like, they just think that it can be what they want. No, man, it's a hellhole, by and large. You just got to learn how to navigate that hellhole and have yeah. fun in it, like we do. And I think sometimes it's just... People try to force these things. And I think if we took a moment and we behaved like the Americans I grew up around and we behaved like we were from the country and we took care of one another, none of this shit would matter. Yeah. A, a nuclear missile don't make no goddamn sense to a wheat farmer. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Despite the fact that in my hometown, all of the missiles are underneath those wheat farms. Yeah. Anyway, that's my closing message. I fuck nuclear weapons, but they do exist. And unfortunately, it's a very, very serious reality that we have to live with. And it's bullshit that we do. Mm -hmm. Nobody should have to live with that shit, but we do. And that's just kind of how... Things are going to be for the foreseeable future until they all get dropped yeah. and we're all dead. And hopefully you'll be listening to the podcast then, you know, we'll do a special one that if you start it right, you know, at like 1130, right as the bombs drop. I hope it's not a New Year's. Anyway, oh, what's man. uh? Well, you got any closing thoughts or is it riddle time? It's riddle time. Fuck yeah, it's riddle o'clock. This is where I check out. Bye. So last week's riddle was I reach for the sky, but I clutch to the ground. Sometimes I leave, but I'm always around. What am I? It's a tree. Oh, see, that's the second tree riddle we've had in a couple months. Yes, uh, I like tree riddles. Man. Yeah, I get that. I like trees, They're too. They're grown on me. <laughs> this isn't about puns. <laughs> this is, that's a different time. That's a different podcast. Welcome to pun time. No. Um, a a pun cast? <laughs> you only speak in puns for the whole fucking thing? You know, I, I once did a, a whole musical about puns. Well, it was more of a play on words, but... <laughs> mm. <laughs> Do your riddle before I fucking kill you. So this week's riddle is: My life can be measured in hours. I serve by being devoured. Yeah. Thin, I am quick. Fat, I am slow. Wind is my foe. What am I? Me, I think. <laughs> the answer is the colonel. I think. Well, uh, let us know what you think your answers. Let us know what you think your answers are, punk, in the comments. <laughs> also, any thoughts on this case? It's a pretty wild one. Uh, do you think they did it? Do you think they deserve to be executed? Uh, and if they did do it, do you think? Yeah, I guess that was my follow up question. <laughs> but if they did it, do you think that they deserve to be punished, or do you think that uh, all is fair in love and war? Uh, I don't know. I guess that's it, Caleb. Do you have anything to add? I do not. All right, then we love you, and we will see you next week, guys. Oh, yeah.